Hello and welcome to this Endo Life. I'm Jessica Duffin. I'm an Endo Warrior and Endo Health Coach, and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. As always, this podcast is here for educational purposes only. Please consult your medical practitioner before making any nutritional changes or bringing in any supplements. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a shout out to my lovely sponsors at BU. And I wanted to tell you about their new bath bombs, which are naturally made and contain beautiful essential oils. And their peppermint and eucalyptus essential oils um, bath bomb is doing so well right now with endometriosis community. They're getting loads of feedback about it. And, you know, if you love the patches themselves you're going to love the bath bombs because essentially it's (laughs) the patch in a bath bomb um so you know if you're on your period or if you're in pain you could have a bath with some of the bath bombs or one of them I don't know you could have multiple if you want um and then yeah get out the bath maybe rub in some cbd balm and put your patch on top, which is um, what a lot of people are feeding back that they're doing. So um, I would love to do that, but um, I don't have a bath, so I can't. But if you have a bath, um, then, you know, I think these new bath bombs could be a lovely way to help alleviate some of your pain. So if you'd like to check them out, you can go to BU, which is buonline.co.uk, and you can also order them from anywhere in the world on cultbeauty.co.uk and they deliver worldwide. So before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to give a shout out to the lovely girls at Semaine. They are two sisters with endometriosis. They've been on the show before and they founded Semaine, which is a supplement company for people with periods to originally, their first supplement was to aid with PMS and period pain. And I know that it is a lifesaver for so many people with endometriosis and painful periods. I absolutely love that supplement. It's really helped me when I've had to kind of follow protocols for SIBO or, you know, I've had a stressful time and I've been worried about my period. I've been able to avoid a flare with that supplement and they've always been so kind and um, kindly sent me sent me them when I when I've needed them. And now they've come out with a new supplement called the Daily, and it is a hormone balancing supplement, which is designed to help with healthy skin, stable mood, fewer cravings in your luteal phase, blood sugar balance. And they recently gifted it to me. Honestly, I said this to my client the other day. My blood sugar levels have never felt so stable as they did when I was taking that day, daily supplement. As you guys know, I I work very hard to stabilize my blood sugar levels because that will keep inflammation down and it also ensures that you have healthy balanced hormones. It's, it's really, really key. And I have a history of having really unstable blood sugar. Originally growing up, it was because of my eating disorder. But then in later years, it was much more down to firstly following a vegan diet when I didn't understand how to build my plate, a healthy blood sugar balancing plate. And secondly, because of my microbiome and my microbiome because of SIBO is 
built to actually extract more glucose from my food and cause blood sugar instability. This is actually a really key piece of blood sugar. If your blood sugar is resisting all of the strategies you're trying, that is a massive clue that your microbiome is affecting the way that your blood sugar is is being controlled in your body. So we need to work on that, work on your gut. And mine has improved mine has improved massively, but I still react much more um erratically than someone else would to blood sugar fluctuations. And I couldn't believe the difference. It was like I had a whole month of like stable blood sugar. It was incredible. And as a result, I had much more of a healthier cycle. I felt a lot more satisfied. I had less food cravings. I just felt a lot more stable in energy. So I'm a really big fan of this. And as I said, blood sugar is a huge piece to managing your hormones, hence why blood sugar is such a big part of their their supplement. So the girls have kindly given me a discount code for you guys. It will get you 20% off your first um, order, whether that's the daily or the PMS and period support capsules. And the code is ENDOLIFE, one word, all caps. So E-N-D-O-L-I-F-E. And that code is valid for the next six months, I believe. So you can use it at any time. Um, So let me know how you get on with them. I'd love to hear if you find them as amazing as I did. And I hope that they bring you a happier and healthier cycle and period. So a little while ago, just before I took my break, I asked you guys what your questions were about SIBO and about endobelly. And my gosh, did you come through with the questions? I actually had so many questions submitted on Instagram. So what I decided to do is record my answers in a few Instagram lives and then share them as podcast episodes so that, you know, more of you have this information because not everyone who is on Instagram is on my podcast and and vice versa. So if you're like, hmm, I don't know if SIBO is for me, we're not always just talking about SIBO, but if you suffer with bloating or endobelly, diarrhea or constipation, nausea or or vomiting that's not induced by like your pain, gas or burping, GERD or acid reflux, then I think that this episode could be worth a listen. And in context of the, you know, the diarrhea constipation piece, I'm talking about constipation or diarrhea or loose stools or hard stools that are basically more or less your everyday normal rather than you get diarrhea on your period and you get a bit of constipation in your luteal phase. That's more hormonal. It could be worsened by a gut condition. Definitely, it could be being worsened by SIBO. But if that's like your only experience, then it's probably more hormonal than it is SIBO. And I've put some links in the show notes to some episodes that could help you with that. However, if you are suffering with any of the other symptoms, then I think it could be worth listening to this episode. So like I said, I'm not answering all of the questions today. I'm just answering some of them as I had quite a lot. So here are the questions that we're going to be going through today. What came first, endo or SIBO? Are there certain people with endo who are more likely to develop SIBO? What's the connection between SIBO and IBS and how do you differentiate between them? What are the stats on IBS, endo and SIBO? Are there any foods that make SIBO worse? 
Do you have to do a low FODMAP diet long-term to manage SIBO? Does diet help SIBO? And can SIBO cause B12, zinc, iron, and magnesium deficiencies? So those are the episode, those are the questions we're going to be going through today. And obviously I'm going to weave in throughout this, how does endo play a role? How, how is endo linked? And how does this impact the endo belly? So I hope this podcast episode ha- um, is really useful to you. And if you're wondering whether this, you know, what's going on for you is SIBO or if it's caused by endo or if it's something else that's causing your bloating and your symptoms, or you'd like to learn how to test for SIBO or just understand a bit more before you investigate further, then I've put some of my key podcast episodes in the show notes to give you a nice starting base. And it includes not just about SIBO, but like root causes of the endo belly and why you might get diarrhea on your period and why you might get constipated on your luteal phase. So there's a nice range of kind of further listening if you need it. Okay, now before we jump into the episode... I wanted to remind you that I am holding two free workshops next week and these workshops are to support those of you who are struggling with overwhelm or not knowing where to start with beating the endo belly. So the workshop's called Creating a Roadmap for Endo Belly Healing and I'm holding two of them, one on May the 24th at 7pm British Summertime and one on May the 26th at 7pm British Summertime, so that's Tuesday and Thursday. If you can make it live, that's great because you'll get to ask me questions in real time and you'll get to interact with the other people on the call. But if you can't attend live, don't worry, sign up and I'll send you the recording the next day. But this is a two hour long workshop. I ran it last year and people loved it. They found it really, really empowering, really informative, and it gave them like a clear path on how to manage their endo belly. And so in this two hour workshop, I'm going to be showing you how to overcome endo belly information overwhelm. Like, what do you need to know now? What do you need to know later? Kind of sort through all of the noise. I'm going to help you identify your core endo belly challenges. So, okay, what are your biggest symptoms with the endo belly? Let's start with like the ones that are interfering with your life first and sort of prioritize what you're taking on. Then I'm going to teach you the first, second and third line therapies for endo belly healing that I go through with all of my clients. Now, what first, second and third line therapies are are basically strategies and protocols that we use in gut healing. That's just the name that we call it. And we're starting with essentially beginners, advanced and sorry, beginners, intermediate and advanced, if if you think about it in that way. Um, But it's not like, oh, if you've been doing loads of healing, you jump in straight to the advanced. It's more like what is um, a foundational first step for your gut and then the next step and then the next step. So we're sort of going through it in a nice systematic way. And then finally, we're going to set one to three goals and next steps so that you can get started and take action literally straight after the workshop if you want to. I'm sure most of you would just want to go to bed, but you know, the next day or that week you can take action to start healing the endo belly. So it's a free workshop and if you'd like to sign up, you do need to book your place and I've put the link to that in the show notes. Okay, so if you notice the sim- these symptoms, if you feel like endo belly is ruling your life, maybe sign up for the workshop and I hope to see some of you there. Hi. Um, okay, if I put my mug there, it might keep my phone in place. 
you occasionally might see the ceiling because I think my phone's going to fall over because I'm not using um, my stand because it's broken. Um, so a couple weeks ago, I um, did a like post on stories just asking for your questions about the endo belly and about SIBO. Um, and I was going to answer them in when I got back from my break, which is now I'm back. Um, so I'm going to probably do this in two parts. This is part one. And I've got questions that were submitted previously. Um, and, you know, on the back of a question, you know, you can ask another question, but I am going to get through. I got so many questions about this. So I want to um, make sure I give these questions my attention. Um, but hopefully you guys find this useful because it's all about that bloating and that abdominal pain and sensitivity and a lot of those IBS symptoms that often come with endometriosis. So I'm going to aim to do 30 minutes. It's probably going to be over because when do I ever keep to time? Never. Um, let me just pull up these questions. I've got string on me. So... I'm going to start with, because I feel like this is a good introduction. What came first? Was endo before the SIBO or SIBO was first then endo? So to help answer this question, why the hell are we talking about SIBO? What is SIBO? SIBO is small intestine bacterial overgrowth. It is an overgrowth of normal healthy bacteria in the small intestine. Your good gut bugs should be in the large intestine predominantly. There's a, there's a tiny amount of um, bacteria in the small intestine, but it shouldn't be very much. So when this occurs, the signature bloating, is, uh, the signature symptom is bloating. And so... Um, we also get this, this bloating, but we get um, IBS symptoms like gas, acid reflux, constipation, diarrhea. Those are the two like big ones with the bloating, burping, nausea, in some cases vomiting. It also comes with things like fatigue, full body pain, bladder pain, um, and generally just feeling really unwell. So this um, condition, SIBO, is very common in the endometriosis community. So 80, the current research is small research, so we, we do need to do more. But the current research is estimating that 80% of people with endometriosis have SIBO. And we know that many of us, in fact, I polled you guys, and out of hundreds of you who took part, 100% of you said you suffer from bloating and the endo belly. So what's really interesting is that we have this phrase endo belly, um, but how much of it is actually being caused by SIBO if 80% of us have SIBO? Um, and I, I talk about this in my podcast. Um, I talk about the kind of 10 top causes of bloating and endometriosis. I don't believe it's just down to the endometriosis directly. All of the all of the clients that I've seen, all of the research that I've done, all of the training I've done points otherwise. Like it's not just the endo. I feel like that's like my catchphrase. It's not just the endo. Um, so 
this is why we're talking about SIBO because it is so common and in the endometriosis community I see it in about 90% of my clients um, and it's why I specialized in SIBO and endometriosis together I don't I don't see people who just have SIBO I see people with endometriosis on their on its own or I see people with endometriosis and SIBO um, so the chicken or the egg scenario did SIBO come first or did the endo come first we don't know. I think it probably varies from person to person. The reason being is that endometriosis is a cause of SIBO, definitively. Like it's literally in the um, all of the training on SIBO. And that's because endometriosis can cause adhesions either directly from the endometriosis itself or from the um, surgeries. And so when we have those adhesions, they can stick on the intestines. So I'm going to sneeze. <coughs> My hay fever is crazy at the moment. Is anyone else's? It's like it's better than it has been in years because I'm taking quercetin. I've been working on my histamine, but it's still crazy, if that makes sense. Um, so it's a tree pollen. I, my body can't stand tree pollen. Um, where was I? Okay, so adhesions stick onto the intestines and to distort the small intestine. And when that occurs, bacteria builds up in the small intestine. So the way that the body keeps the small intestine healthy and avoids this um, overgrowth of, of bacteria is that there's something called the migrating motor complex. And the migrating motor complex is like a nice wave motion that occurs in the small intestine two hours after eating and overnight. And it clears out the bacteria and old food debris um, and keeps it clean. So when we have adhesions, that can result in a buildup of bacteria and that migrating motor complex not being able to do its work. So endometriosis may have been first and then the SIBO caused it. On the flip side, research has found that these toxins called lipopolysaccharides are also known as endotoxins. So you might see the, the two names around, around basically when you're doing your research. They found that lipopolysaccharides contribute to the development and growth of endometriosis. Lipopolysaccharides are kind of toxins that come from bacteria and uh, mainly uh, gram-negative bacteria. I'm remembering correctly um, and with SIBO we have heightened levels of lipopolysaccharides because we have more bacteria they're breaking down and they're being released into the bloodstream and this occurs because this this release into the bloodstream occurs because the wall of the intestine has become damaged so instead of protecting your body and only allowing the good things to pass through into the bloodstream that literally sits on the other side, ready to take on the nutrients, ready to take on all of the all of the good stuff from your food, that bloodstream is also taking on things like lipopolysaccharides. And lipopolysaccharides are inflammatory. When the immune system sees lipopolysaccharides, it releases inflammation. Um, so we then have this inflammatory response. It makes us feel like rubbish. But additionally, they're finding that the lipopolysaccharides um, are involved with this inflammation sort of um, 
I don't know what the word is, reaction in the development of endometriosis. So it's this chicken or the egg scenario, which one came first? I think what we are learning from the research, and you know, you're, I'm sure a researcher could give us more detail on this, is that there are multiple different, you know, we don't have a definitive cause of endometriosis, but it seems to be like there are perfect storms and it's not necessarily just one thing it might be that someone had SIBO but they were also exposed to a lot of dioxins in the environment which can contribute to SIBO and that they also had a genetic predisposition to develop it so it could be like these multiple things that have had an effect um maybe someone didn't have SIBO but it was already in their their endometriosis See, I told you that would happen. And the endometriosis was already in the family. So, try and put it behind. All right, now I've got to move to try and accommodate the phone. Um, I feel like there's a really weird angle. Okay, so um, we don't know. It chicken or which came first chicken or the egg so I'm sure we'll find out a bit more information in the future but I am not I'm not yet in the camp that everyone who had C, you know everyone was developed SIBO and then the endo came because we do know that endo can develop in the womb so it there, there I'm assuming there's more to it than that um, okay, so next question. I've written down a couple ones that I want to answer today and then I'm going to answer the others next week. Um, are there people with endo who are more likely to develop it? So, yes, um, if you have more significant adhesions um, and they are affecting your intestines or your small intestines, then you're certainly more likely to develop it. If you have had a significant surgery for your endometriosis, so maybe for some reason you, I don't know, you had like a cyst rupture, something happened and you had to have more than a keyhole surgery, that is going to develop significant adhesions. Um, if you had a partial or a full hysterectomy, um, that is going to develop really significant adhesions. So those are, um, you're going to, develop most likely develop adhesions whether you have keyhole surgery or what do they call it I can't think of the word I'm just going to say more expansive surgery more like they, they've you know done a big incision that has a higher um risk of developing endometrium um, developing adhesions but we all have a high risk once we've had a keyhole surgery um obviously if you have significant deep infiltrating endometriosis with lots of adhesions just from the endometriosis itself, regardless of the surgery, that could play a role as well. I mean, you could have significant, you know, yeah, no, that, yeah. Um, and um, if you have other things that have happened to you in your past, um, so for example, I, I didn't develop my SIBO from the endometriosis because I don't have I have significant adhesions from the surgeries. I don't have significant adhesions from my endometriosis and my SIBO developed when I was two. So my SIBO developed from having gastroenteritis when I was two. 
Um, and I think what worsened it, I always had it from that point onwards, um, because gastroenteritis or food poisoning is the leading cause of SIBO, because it damages the small, uh, it damages the migrating motor complex. But I also had a car accident, and um, I was knocked unconscious during that car accident, and I also broke my spine. So those are two injuries that would affect the migrating motor complex. It basically would affect the nerves that control the digestion. Um, so if you've had an injury like that, it doesn't have to be a hard bang to the head. It doesn't have to be a hard bang to the spine. It could have been someone kicked a football and it hit your head. It could have been that you thought the chair was behind you and it wasn't and you, you hit the ground. Um, if you also have hyperthyroidism or diabetes, we do know that hyperthyroidism, um, we have a greater chance of developing that with endometriosis. So hyperthyroidism does contribute to the development of SIBO. Um, if you have a history, like I said, of, of um, food poison or gastroenteritis, if you have hypermobility or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which affects the um, soft tissue of the body, um, and we are now finding that there is a link between hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and endometriosis. So that could, uh, for those of you out there with that, that would put you, that would predispose you. Um, if you have histamine issues or muscle activation syndrome, really more so the muscle activation syndrome, that might um, potentially, might potentially contribute. But I wonder if it's more of an association uh, rather than a risk factor. Um, those are probably the main obvious ones. I just want to check. I mean, there are so many risk factors for developing SIBO, but I'm just thinking if there are any others that um, are a standout to me. But I think those are probably the, the key ones. Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. These natural patches last for 12 hours, so they bring you prolonged relief and can begin working on relaxing your muscles before the pain kicks in, so you're prepared even if your period comes during the middle of the day. Some people even find that wearing them a night before their period can really help soothe the inflammation in the area. To shop, just head to link in my show notes. POTS, yeah, partial tachycardia syndrome, which can come with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome uh, and muscle activation syndrome. So um, that I am seeing in a lot of my clients. Um, anything that could affect your immune system, um, pelvic inflammatory disease. There are so many things. Um, a previous history of appendicitis and having your appendix removed because of the adhesions. Um so there are a lot of causes, um, but those are some that I would see with current clients. Um, low stomach acid, low digestive enzymes, which can occur in people who have chronic stress and chronic pain, because that is essentially chronic stress, right? And that lowers your stomach, that lowers the, um, the protective mechanisms that help to keep the bacteria at bay. Okay, move on to the next question because I'm already 20 minutes in. Um, 
how to, okay, the connection, the SIBO connection with IBS symptoms. So this is why it's so important to talk about in our community, regardless of like the fact that, you know, potentially 80% of us with SIBO, with endo have SIBO, is that what they're finding in the research is that 60 to 70% of IBS cases is SIBO. So, so many of us with endometriosis were misdiagnosed with IBS, right? Why? Yes, endometriosis can play a role, but I'm assuming that when you got your diagnosis of endometriosis, your IBS symptoms didn't go away. They were still there. And the issue is that they're often just bulked under that umbrella of endo, but it could also be the SIBO too. So if, uh, so um, we know that 60 to 70% of, of IBS is SIBO. Um, the connection with, I think you asked with the symptoms, they're the same. Um, abdominal pain and cramping, abdominal sensitivity, fecal urgency. So when you've got to go, you've got to go. Diarrhea, constipation, hard stools, loose stools, um, nausea, gas, burping, acid reflux. You know, they're all vomiting. Um, they're all, those are the symptoms. Um, the three biggest ones, yeah, free constipation, bloating, diarrhea. I guess the fourth would be abdominal pain or sensitivity. So you don't have to have all those and you don't have to have both, like constipation or diarrhea. You could lean towards one or the other. Um, but um, they're, you know, they're the same. Uh, so I hope that's helpful. Um, you asked how to differentiate between IBS and SIBO. There is really no... Um, there's no difference because they might actually, in most cases, be the same, uh, same disease, same condition. SIBO is not a disease. Um, but I guess the thing that's going to help you be sure that it's not SIBO because IBS isn't like a diagnosis in it. I feel like I'm missing a word here, but IBS isn't like a diagnosis and then that's it there's something causing the IBS does that make sense like the IBS isn't the end of the road it's not the answer IBS is a mm, you've got a collection of symptoms we don't really know what's ca causing them so we're calling it IBS um so to at least rule out SIBO you would need to do a test and that's kind of how you would differentiate um Uh, more stats on endo and SIBO. Um, I mean, I think I covered most of the stats. I mean, let me see if I've missed any. As I said, like 80% of people with the current research, 80% of people with endo have SIBO. Also in the same research, 100% um, of the people in the um, call, in the call, in the study, um, had a migrating motor complex deficiency. So then what causes SIBO, this deficient migrating motor complex wasn't working properly. If it were, if it stopped working full stop, there'd be trouble. <laughs> um, but it had significantly been impaired. Um, and as I said, 60 to 70% of people with SIBO, uh, with IBS, it's SIBO. Um, 
the current estimation is that maybe 20 to 30 million million people in the US have SIBO. Um, I'm just trying to see if there's any other stats that you might find helpful. No, I think those are the main ones. Um, someone asked, uh, can SIBO cause B12, zinc, iron, magne and magnesium malabsorption or deficiency? Um, yes, mainly B12 um, and iron, those are really common ones. Um, and... Yeah, so any nutrient that is um, fat-soluble, so vitamin D, A, oh, which are the other ones? Um, K, vitamin D, A, E, K, um, omega-3 deficiency as well, um, obviously that being a fat. Um, so those are the key ones, but so B12, iron, um fat soluble nutrients but um what did you say i guess assuming zinc and um zinc and magnesium all of your nutrient absorption is impaired with SIBO because the um the bacteria are competing for your food um and on top of that your digestive enzymes which are what absorb your food they become damaged and they become lessened and your the wall of your small intestine so your small intestine is where you do the bulk of your nutrient absorption the um wall is damaged as well so you can't actually absorb very well through the wall so everything tends to become everything you get malabsorption with pretty much everything but some of the those are like some really key signs um any foods okay so there was three questions that are quite similar so i'm going to read them out and kind of answer them in like like together um any foods that make SIBO worse the next question was can diet help SIBO and then someone else said please don't tell me i have to go low fodmap <laughs> okay so um SIBO bacteria um, would taking a probiotic help fix the problem so that these vitamins and minerals be absorbed properly again? I'm afraid not. Um, so probiotics can actually worsen SIBO. Single strain probiotics might be okay. So like one strain may help, but you have to be very careful with which one and test it. Um, I talk about that a bit more in the podcast episodes. I actually have one on probiotics. You could have a listen to that. And I talk about it more in my courses, like my specialist courses on endobelly and SIBO and stuff. Um, but no, it's a little bit of a tricky area with probiotics. And unfortunately, probiotics won't fix SIBO. You have to go through a treatment protocol. You have to kill it, I'm afraid. Um, so diet. Diet isn't a treatment for SIBO, but it is supportive to manage symptoms. It is supportive to the success of treatment and it is essential for a couple of months post 
eradication. So once you kill the SIBO to prevent relapse. So SIBO feeds off our food, but it particularly feeds of carbohydrates and fiber. So it will eat nuts, seeds, fruits, vegetables, grains, beans. It doesn't eat, most of the time, it doesn't eat fat or protein. So it won't eat meat, fish, eggs, fat like um, olive oil. It would eat fats in the form of like avocado or nuts or nut butter because that's high fiber and also includes carbohydrate. So you're obviously not going to spend your life eating meat, eggs and fish and some olive oil, right? That's that's ridiculous. Um, so it's about minimizing the amount of fiber and carbohydrate sources it has. Now there is a slide and scale of diets that help for SIBO. If you have minimal symptoms, then just eating a paleo diet, which which lowers carbohydrates by a degree, uh, it's a moderate carb diet, might be enough for you to experience relief of symptoms to carry you through your treatment and maybe carry you through your prevention of relapse. At the um, most severe end, if your symptoms are very, very severe, the most kind of strict diet you could really do for SIBO and the one that is the most successful is um, the SIBO biphasic diet or the SIBO specific food guide. They're essentially exactly the same, um, but one of them has more structure than the other. So one of them is sort of like a protocol and another is, here's the list, do what you will with it. Um, and for the SIBO biphasic diet, there are um, a couple of different versions. So there's veggie versions, there's low histamine versions, um, there's obviously uh, meat eaten versions. Um, so that's on the strictest end. In the middle-ish, sort of moderate to middle, is a low FODMAP diet. Um, so no, you don't have to go low FODMAP. Um, I think you said low FODMAP for a long time. And so I want to be clear that these are not long-term diets. There might be, for people who have chronic relapse and SIBO, there might be some foods that they need to manage or avoid or minimise. But the point of all of these diets is that you're basically expanding to the point where you can tolerate and eat as normal a diet as possible once you clear that SIBO. If you can't clear the SIBO or you relapse because you're chronic, then it's about just finding a hopefully something like the paleo diet that works for you and keeps it at bay. But even so, that doesn't mean you can't go out and eat like a normal meal like everyone else you know, out or um, have a piece of birthday cake. It's not about strict adherence. Like one meal is not going to make you relapse from SIBO. Um, it's about what you're doing on a daily basis. But no, you won't be doing a low FODMAP diet long term. I mean, that is not designed to be done long term anyway. And with all of these diets, including the low FODMAP diet, it's about you expand to tolerance to the point where you work out, right, I can eat most FODMAPs, but you know, I, I just can't tolerate 
that specific type of bean. I'm a mess. It's excruciating. So, you know, there might be a couple, a hand, hopefully just a handful of foods that you really can't tolerate. But um, the idea is that you can expand tolerance. But for a while, um, you might be on some form of low fibre-ish carb, low carb diet or moderate to low. Um but the idea is we try to minimise that. And for some people, they won't use any diet for symptom management or treatment um, until they get to what's known as a prevention of relapse phase, which is you've cleared the SIBO and you're trying to prevent relapse. That's where diet is the most important. Um, and that is, it takes about three to six months. So if someone can avoid going on a strict diet prior to that and if they don't have loads of symptoms to manage then I try to avoid them going on one of those really strict diets if if possible um so that's where I'm going to wrap up um I think I've answered two three four five six seven eight nine I've answered like nine or ten of those questions like coupled together like some of them were the same so um hopefully that has been helpful and then um so I'm getting distracted because there's like light flickering outside like someone's holding a mirror or something I don't know um and um sorry it's distracting me I will answer more next time um we've got questions like i'll just give you a little bit of a heads up of the kind of questions that i'm going to be answering um do the gastro specialists in the health service have an awareness of SIBO is SIBO recognized and taken seriously within the health service um how do you get diagnosed correctly um can you have a negative test but actually be positive um, how do you do the test? What other things could be causing the symptoms? Um, or are there any indications that it's not SIBO? Um, how to tell the difference between SIBO and endobelly? So hopefully um, some of those future questions will be helpful for you as well. All right. I hope this was helpful, guys. Um, I hope it's given a bit more food for thought. If you suspect that you might have SIBO, please don't panic. Um, there is so there's more research and more support out there for SIBO than there ever has been before. What I will say is that I would get yourself to a place where you feel mentally able to take it on because it is a bit of a process. Um, and if there are things like excruciating endo pain that we can just minimize and get you to a point where you can um think straight and you're not like in excruciating pain every day um let's just get all you know if you've got some fires going on in your body let's put a couple of those out before you tackle the SIBO I don't recommend that you deep dive into SIBO straight away if you're feeling really really unwell now of course the SIBO may be one of the key drivers of you feeling really really unwell but let's do some simple things first to get you to the point where you're able to take it on because I've done it myself and it, it is difficult and I do it with my clients and it is it is difficult so you just need to be in a place where you can take it on doesn't mean you can't feel well it doesn't mean you can't manage the symptoms in the meantime I've got lots about symptom management on my um podcast on instagram on my website so have a look at those if you want to try and learn how to manage your symptoms until you take on the SIBO 
Um, someone's quickly written, I really want to thank you. I have been new, diagnosed with endo and the info that you have provided has helped me a lot already. Oh my gosh, you're so, so welcome. Um, I'm really sorry for your diagnosis, but I hope that having it has given you some answers to, you know, symptoms I assume you've dealt with for years. So you're very, very welcome. All right, everyone. Um, I hope this was helpful and I will see you guys next week. Bye, bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, you can head to my website, which is www.thisendolife.com. And you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes. It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis. As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. It really, truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis. This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world. 